Welcome to the First Contact Headache and Primary Care Podcast, where we break down topics in headache medicine for healthcare professionals seeing patients with headache disorders. This is a special episode from our Migraine and Women's Health mini-series. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, I'm Dina Kuruvila, a neurologist and headache specialist. Welcome to the First Contact Headache and Primary Care Series. In today's special women's health episode, we'll be having an important conversation about treating and supporting patients with migraine who are preparing for pregnancy and conception. Joining me today are Dr. Susan Hutchinson, a family physician and headache specialist who is the director of the Orange County Migraine and Headache Center in Irvine, California, and Dr. Kate Sticka, an obstetrician and gynecologist from Northwestern University in Chicago, who is also a reproductive pharmacologist. I'm so excited to chat with you both today. And me as well. Um, This is really, truly a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And we're excited to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to get some of these questions answered, not only for myself, but for the many listeners out there. So to start off here, Dr. Hutchinson, when should pre-pregnancy counseling begin in our patients with migraine? What a great question. I think the answer is it's never too soon to start. I literally think any woman that comes into our practice, we need to ask her, are you even thinking about trying to get pregnant? What are you using for contraception? We know that about 50% of pregnancies in the United States are unintended. So I think we have to be prepared at any time. Having said that, I particularly focus on the six months when a woman says, you know, I'm really thinking about wanting to try to get pregnant in about six months. Why do I say that? Mm -hmm. Well, as we know, some of the medications we now use have a long half-life. And in particular, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the CGRP monoclonal antibodies. Mm -hmm. And of course, some of the anti-epileptics we use for prevention. So I think sometimes I don't want to wait till she's actively trying to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. I want to know about six months before she wants to try to get pregnant. That is such a key point, Dr. Hutchinson, planning in advance. Sometimes I jokingly tell my patients to let me know about their pregnancy plans before their husband. So (laughs) that pre-pregnancy planning can be helpful. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) So then, you know, a lot of the patients that we see nowadays as folks are becoming pregnant later in life and are having more fertility treatments. Dr. Sticka, how does fertility treatment exactly impact migraine? So the important thing about fertility treatments is that you're trying to, to get somebody to ovulate or to ovulate better than they would naturally. And as a result, um, as you as you take medications to um, recruit more and more eggs or follicles, the amount of estradiol that each one of these follicles as it matures makes adds together to the total estrogen exposure that occurs at ovulation. And whereas somebody in a normal cycle might have, you know, 200 to 300 picograms of, of, of estradiol around in infertility treatments, that can easily go up to a thousand, sometimes 2000. So, you know, tenfold higher and what goes up has to come down. And so if somebody does not become pregnant 
pregnant, those estradiol levels then fall. And that fluctuation, that drop in estradiol creates that destabilization in the brain that leads to horrible, potentially horrible migraines when women don't become pregnant. Um, and so, it so for women who get perimenstrual migraines, fertility treatments often oftentimes can exacerbate the frequency and the intensity of those, of those headaches. Wow, that's such an excellent point. So not only are we really talking about natural pregnancy planning, we really have to question our patients about their plans for fertility treatments if needed. Correct. Absolutely. It could really change the course of the patient's uh, migraine management. Wow, that's, that's really fascinating. It can make it worse. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, so in these patients um, who we foresee that, you know, based on uh, different factors, migraine is going to get worse. Dr. Hutchinson, what migraine-specific acute medications should be stopped prior to pregnancy? That's a great question. Uh, certainly, you would want to stop any of the ergots. You know, if you have patients still talking the ergots, the ergot alkaloids, those are definitely not indicated during pregnancy. I also want the patient to start maybe focusing on things that would be safe for pregnancy. This is an ideal opportunity, for example, to try acetaminophen with caffeine as a combination. Starting to move away from the non-steroidals, which I don't want to use in pregnancy. So I think what, what's ideal is to start mimicking or putting into practice what is relatively we consider safe for pregnancy, doing it before the woman's pregnant you know, to, to, to get used to a new okay. set of medication. But, but again, going back to your question about acute, definitely stop any of the ergots. Uh, certainly if the woman was still taking butapatol, uh, narcotics, I don't think there's a place for that. I would also start moving away from a dancitron if she was used to using that for nausea and perhaps pick another antiemetic like metoclopramide that would be considered better during pregnancy. Absolutely. That's very helpful. Dr. Sticka, in your practice, which um, rescue or acute medications do you usually stop before pregnancy? Okay, so the, the triptans actually don't need to be stopped. There has been increasing amount of literature showing that for especially first trimester exposure, um, whereas we used to be very concerned about congenital abnormalities because of triptan exposure, that has mm -hmm. been fairly well documented in thousands of women that the triptans really are not associated with congenital abnormality. So you can be fairly safe continuing to use the triptans for acute therapy. I also believe that the, the NSAIDs are problematic, um, especially in women who are trying to get pregnant, who have problems getting pregnant. The role of prostaglandins, which the NSAIDs block, are actually very intimately involved in both the ovulatory process um, right. as that egg is released, as well as implantation. So it's important during this early stages of trying to get pregnant that, that uh, the woman switch from, from supplemental use of NSAIDs to acetaminophen, as opposed to the ibuprofens. Uh, ergots are not recommended. I absolutely agree with that because of its risk. It makes the uterus contract. It's a yes. vasoconstrictor, it's a smooth muscle constrictor. And the uterus is a big smooth muscle and there's risks of first trimester abort, uh, miscarriage as well as possible preterm labor later on. So I'm a firm supporter of yes. blocking that, of stopping those as well. 
Yes, that's an excellent point. We're not only focusing on medications that are, uh, you know, that need to be stopped during pregnancy or prior to pregnancy. We also don't want to have neg cause negative effects on the fertility process. That's such an excellent point about non-steroidal anti-inflammatories when somebody's trying to become pregnant. Right. Thank you. Thank you for that. So then kind of switching gears from acute treatments to preventive treatments, Dr. Hutchinson, what preventive medications should we be tapering prior to pregnancy? You know, I'm going to advocate for trying to take no preventive if you don't need to. You know, I, this is a perfect opportunity to really taper down, I think, on any preventive medication and go towards non-pharmacological ways to prevent treatment. Having said that, mm -hmm. I think most important would be to get off any of the anti-epileptics, including divalproic, as well as dopiramate. Mm -hmm. Those are key. But even if yes. the person was on an anti-hypertensive, they were on a CGRP monoclonal antibody, I would also try to taper off that. Now, the exception yes. would be if the woman was on an antidepressant, like an SSRI or an SNRI, and she needed it for a comorbid condition, for example, yes. depression, I'm going to keep her on that. And I'll be interested in Dr. Stitka's comments too, because I think when you look at women and, you know, if they have a history of significant depression, whether it be during the pregnancy or postpartum, I am not going to be in a hurry to take away uh, that treatment. So I think each woman, you have to look at her individually, what are her comorbid mm -hmm. conditions? But again, there's certain absolutes. Now I'm not a neurologist, so I don't treat seizures. So I think I would have to defer to a neurologist if the woman was on an anti-eleptic for seizures. I think that's a different mm -hmm. topic than what we're discussing here, which is if a woman's on it for migraine prevention. Yes. So Dr. Sticka, what are your views on this topic? Which preventive treatments do you tend to taper prior to pregnancy? Uh, I actually want to echo everything that uh, Dr. Hutchinson said. Um, I'm a firm, you really have to look at why the woman is taking these medications. You know, if the sole reason is for migraine prevention, then I am much more willing to quickly uh, taper her off medications because the need for prevention during pregnancy is often less urgent. Uh, the frequency yes. of migraines, you know, as we've talked about in other uh, podcasts goes down in pregnancy. And so, the, yes. so, so many of these medications are not needed. And when you're balancing risk and benefits, the potential risks associated with them is quite significant. I strongly mm -hmm. believe anybody on valproic acid um, or topiramate really needs to be on a contraceptive medication and should yes. never be attempting pregnancy on either of those two medications. And even if she's on them for, uh, for seizure control, um, neurologists oftentimes, epileptologists oftentimes try to switch to another medication if possible, just yes. because of the associated, I mean, valproic acid not only is associated with a 17% incidence of both major and minor congenital malformations, but it profoundly affects neurological um, and cognitive function in these kids. And it's just not something if you can avoid exposure, um, you should keep a woman on. I mean, that's, that's the yes. biggest and the most concerning one. But any Absolutely. of the other medications, I also believe, you know, if, if we think she's not going to need them, then what is the point of staying on them? You know, the, right. clear, the safest ones are your calcium channel blockers, or even some of your beta blockers. 
Um, you know, if somebody does tr uh, turn out to need um, preventive medications. And, and I also want to echo what Dr. Hutchinson said about the antidepressants. Um, if it's needed, if an SSRI or a SNRI are needed for, for depression control, then that really, that can, needs to be considered to, you know, as a continuing medication in pregnancy. The one caveat is paroxetine. Is, is at least here in the United States, we're cautioning people to try to get off of that and onto another one. Yes. Just because paroxetine has been associated with some, uh, some, some fetal abnormalities. Uh, but the, it, once again, it's always a, it's a, you balance the, the benefits that you can gain from these meds with the associated risks. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. It sounds like uh, we're, uh, you're, you're both kind of unified in saying that less is more, but when something is indicated, you know, every person is individual and um, we have to tailor that approach to the patient and certainly avoid anti-epileptic medications. And involve them in the decision-making process. That's always key. Yes. Provide them with information so that they're, they're part of the decision process. Yes, absolutely. So then I have to ask about a controversy, a preventive controversy. How do you counsel your patients on the use of anabotulinum toxin during pregnancy? How do you start to counsel them on pregnancy planning and whether to continue their anabotulinum treatment or not? That's a great question. As you know, it's controversial in the field of headache medicine. What I tell the woman is, I'm okay continuing your treatments while you're trying to get pregnant, but once you're pregnant, you may not need them. So net, not you know, let's not automatically continue to inject every 12 weeks. Let's see how you do. If you do have a problem with your migraines and we're not able to control it with other treatments and you're having to go to the emergency room or they're really severe, then absolutely. I would then weigh the benefit versus the risk in that particular patient. But I would tell her, even if let's say you need to come in for onobotulinum toxinate during your first trimester, you may not need it as you go into your second and third trimester. There's no evidence of any significant systemic absorption of Botox with administration. That's, that's a really interesting. Yeah, that's a very interesting point because, you know, certainly uh, Dr. Hutchinson, I've seen uh, both sides of the coin where some folks in the headache com community feel very comfortable and others don't. But um, what you said makes perfect sense. There are risks that are there for the mother during pregnancy if she is having significant vomiting related to migraine and um, having disability related to the headache and the associated features. So that's such an excellent point. So you know, when we think about these pharmacological approaches and the potential adverse effects to the fetus um, and or to the mother, that kind of brings up the question about non-pharmacological approaches. So Dr. Hutchinson, what non-pharmacological strategies would be options for treating our, our pregnant patients? Nutraceuticals, acupuncture, yoga, neuromodulation, what do you usually recommend? Well, great. First of all, and, and Dr. Stick has mentioned this before, the importance of hydration, making sure the woman is just getting enough fluid because dehydration alone is not only not good for the, for the mother and the fetus, but that alone can, I know from my experience, be a trigger for, you know, migraines. I think hydration is important. I always go over with a woman, uh, whether she's pregnant or not, go over lifestyle. You know, um, what's her caffeine consumption? I don't want more than about 200 milligrams a day during pregnancy. Uh, you know, is she, is she 
having one or two drinks a day that we need to tackle that issue before she gets pregnant. So I'm trying to have her lifestyle improve before she does get pregnant. Once she is pregnant, I am comfortable, and I hope Dr. Stitka agrees, I'm comfortable with the use of B2, which is riboflavin and magnesium, approximately 200 yes. milligrams twice a day. And of course, her prenatal vitamins, you, you absolutely you know, must have her on a prenatal vitamin with folic acid. But those are the only two supplements, the B12 and magnesium for migraine prevention. I don't want the woman on anything else because I don't think we have evidence or data. Right. Uh, so those are kind of what I do. And the other thing you mentioned, I think physical therapy, massage, acupuncture, acupressure, all those are great avenues for the woman who's trying to get pregnant or pregnant to explore. Mm -hmm. And then last but not least are the FDA clear devices that we have for migraine. We now have five. And I'm not going to go into detail for lack of time on this broadcast, but I think there's no evidence that those should be any problem to the fetus because they're non-invasive uh, and they're drug-free. So those are yes. also options. Oh, that's, that's very helpful. I know that patients who are planning for pregnancy or not even not planning for pregnancy, one of their first questions to me in the clinic is, what are some of the natural approaches or what's something I can add to my mainstream regimen? So that's so helpful to know that there are these safe, safer approaches we can consider during pregnancy. So Dr. Sticka, what resources for us as providers would be useful in making treatment decisions during this time of pre-pregnancy planning? So one of the one of the resources that I use almost daily is a software uh, package that's available on my hospital intranet mm -hmm. called Clinical Pharmacology, and that is you can look up each drug in Clinical Pharmacology, and besides talking about indications and adverse effects, um, and class of drugs and all the other things that you can you know and, and the dosages, it has a section on pregnancy. Mm -hmm. where it addresses risks associated with pregnancy exposure, mm -hmm. as well as it summarizes some of the, res the research that uh, supports the possibility or the need to change dosaging for some of these drugs. Mm -hmm. um, the new pregnancy labeling, um, if, if you know, companies that are manufacturing these drugs have um, modified their um, the pregnancy labeling based on the new FDA guidelines also has a section on risk and benefit uh, balances as well as dosing recommend recommendations as well. So if you can either go to clinical pharmacology, if your hospital has that mm -hmm. resource, or you can um, look up the labeling for that drug, which hopefully should have both access to the, the registry as well as uh, new guidelines for pregnancy exposures. That's very helpful. I'll check. I can, you know, certainly clinical pharmacology may be accessible through your local intranet. And if, if not, um, you know, we could certainly search for that and use it for clinical practice. Dr. Hutchinson, do you have any resources that you'd recommend for clinical providers for pre-pregnancy planning? One is the popular one that's written by Briggs et al. And it's called Drugs and Pregnancy and Lactation. It's a hardback. And I think it regularly gets updated. And then there's another one called Mother to Baby. And that's available online. And that has information about you know, pregnancy and breastfeeding. And through my collaboration with AHS, as well as my work on the practice bulletin committee for ACOG, um, I'm one of the authors on the new upcoming uh, headaches, uh, management of headaches in pregnancy, 
where a lot of this information hopefully will be, um, will some, be summarized and in a useful format uh, for, for clinicians. Excellent. We'll definitely have to keep a lookout for that, Dr. Sticka. That's wonderful. <laughs> this question and answer session has been so helpful for myself as a provider and for all of our listeners. Thank you so much for taking time from your patients and your day to chat with me today and share your clinical experience. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. As well for me. I very much enjoy uh, this process. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this special Women's Health episode of the First Contact Headache in Primary Care podcast. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Listeners can find additional information and doctor-verified resources about migraine treatment and management on the First Contact Headache in Primary Care website. Visit the site at AmericanHeadacheSociety.org slash primary care. This podcast is brought to you by the American Headache Society and made possible by Eli Lilly.